Welcome to The Lead, a podcast where we talk to law enforcement officers, veteran detectives, and scientists to help solve homicide cases that we have here at the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office. My name is Anthony Rodriguez. I'm Fatima Simici. Now, last week, we talked about a gruesome murder of a mother and possible wife who was uh, executed and left out in the field, uh, not too far from where we are right now. Uh, But this week, we're not only going to be talking to the lead detective of a decades-old case, we're also going to be talking to forensic artists. We're going to talk about how detectives and scientists work together to solve cases like this, especially when it comes to skeletal remains. So with us today, we have, again, from the Cold Case Unit, the man, the myth, the legend, (laughs) Detective John Cogbert. Thank you again for being with us today. Thank you, Anthony, for having me. Before we uh, start, we have to premise to the audience that what we're going to talk about today is uh, of sensitive nature. It's graphic. We're going to be showing some images of the crime scene of bones. We're going to be talking about murder. So please, viewer discretion is, is advised. Now, that being said, let's jump straight to it. Uh, what case do you have for us today? Excellent, Anthony. Thank you again. And we're going to start with a case from 1985. I think the uh, the last case we reviewed, basically the dynamics of Palm Beach County back in are not as big as we are today. Um, we were probably hovering around in the uh, mid-1980s, about 700,000 people plus tourists. Now we're approaching 1.5 million and growing. So you can see um, the population was a little bit, uh, a little smaller than it is today. And if you go back to 1985, we're going to take you to January the 12th. There were some kids that were playing in the wooded areas and they discovered a human skull uh, while playing. The area where they discovered this was a was at the time the Florida Department of Natural Resources property. And it neighbored Pine Grove Stables, where there, these were active stables with horses and hands and, and people working, uh, working the horses there. Um, the body was found along this uh, LS9 canal bank, and it was considered a heavily wooded area. In the area for Palm Beach County residents, it was just south of Forest Hill Boulevard, which is pretty much about the center of Palm Beach County. The area was frequented by children. They found the skull. They went to one of the ranch hands and showed them the skull, which triggered the law enforcement response. There, you're going to have our medical examiner's office who are responsible and in charge of the human remains. You have your detectives that are going to be there that are charged with the investigation. Then at some point in time, we will get anthropologists involved, odontologists, which will do the dental work, and other forensic people that we're going to bring on later where we have Detective Autumn Crick, who does an exceptional job with the reconstructions and the age progressions for some of our cases. But uh, I'm going to take you down here to uh, that area of Forest Hill Boulevard which was, in, it's basically a, a heavily wooded area at the time. There wasn't a whole lot of stuff going on in this area. Um, research into the area showed that they did some drainage work and made some canals in that area. But um, to get there, you had to be somewhat familiar with it. Mm. It wasn't an area that you were just going to kind of find on your own. So, um, so this is the canal that we're looking at here. Yep, it's basically aerial views of what where where the canal was, and it was in the wooded area along the canal bank. Mm-hmm. 
that the kids were just chasing each other around. Back then, they weren't stuck at home playing video games all day. They had to go in the woods and chase birds and throw rocks at each other all day. So they're playing so, out here in this wooded area. They find this goal. They call. I'm sure, I'm sure their parents scary. call. The kids actually go and meet one of the ranch hands from the horse stables, and they tell him, hey, we found a skull. And then that triggers, of course, the response. They want to go see where they found it and stuff like that. Ultimately, once law enforcement comes out there, we find that uh, there's a shallow grave. So there are human remains buried in a a very shallow grave out there. And you can see the remains are, are like this. So about 16 inches below the surface is uh, how deep they were buried. So this is actual burial. So it's it's not like, you know, over time, you know, soot or sand fell upon this, this body. Somebody purposely made and dug a hole. Correct. Yeah. So when, when we look at these things, it was basically described as sand and mud and debris, mm. vegetation, debris and stuff placed over the top. So, wow. they, so there was an this, effort to conceal oh, oh the remains. Did these kids then started to dig? No, the or? kids stopped with the skull. They brought the mm. skull to the uh, the ranch hand, and then the ranch hand came and met the uh, the uh, called the detectives and mm. everybody to come out or the sheriff's office. So at the time, they were just basically going with the skull right here. So as as we have the remains, like we said, they were sixteen about sixteen inches below there. It's in an open field. There's not a whole lot we have to go on. At this time, um, looking at those remains at the time, one of the things we noted is, or I noticed in the photographs because I wasn't able to be at that scene, there's been a lot of cases that I've seen that you may see a button, a sliver of leather, just some very fibrous portions Mm -hmm. of material, you know, just minute, very small. But in this shallow grave, there's nothing indicating that he could have just been naked. And wow. dumped there. So that tells us a few things that maybe he was not killed there. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe he was disposed of there and killed someone else. The secondary scene, whatever you want, could want to call it, where the murder could have happened. But for some reason, they brought him out into this area, which would be an isolated, desolate area, to dispose of these remains. And um, we had the anthropologist and the odontologist, which does the dentist. The anthropologist does the bones, the trauma. An injury, and we basically came up with this information about who this guy was. Um, they they know he was a male. They felt he was thirty to forty five years old. Um, he was about he's a big fella, mm. so he's about six foot one to six foot four, mm. somewhere in that range. Broad shouldered, heavy, average muscular build. He had a scar, healed injury on his right brow. If you can see in this photograph right up here, he had a permanent scar that would have stood out, and you would have probably recognized and noticed him by from that scar. He had extensive dental work. The anthropologist, which was done, I believe, back then by the Smithsonian Institute, that detectives would send it to the Smithsonian Institute. The uh, I basically cited it said, this guy valued his smile. He had a lot of dental work done. Mm-hmm. Um, possibly because, I mean, looking at this and talking to Detective Crick, who'll be on later, looks like this guy was maybe a fighter, a brawler, mm-hmm. had been... Big maybe, dude had maybe been in, uh, you know, in contact with the fights. Uh, fights in his heyday. Right. So uh, he had one gold cap on his molar. He had a healed nose fracture um, in his mid back. He had fractures in some areas of his spine. Um, we also know that uh, his time of death was estimated at five to six years prior to the discovery. 
So we're looking at five-year watermark, if they're guessing, around 1980 that he was killed and then buried there. Wow. I can imagine this is a extremely difficult case for anybody. I mean, not knowing, you know, who this person is, there's no right. indication, no ID, no, no clothing. What do you do? Where do you go from here? That's why we're here. This is it. We've basically exhausted most investigative avenues that we can from a forensic standpoint and a scientific standpoint. This guy's DNA has been circulating and being compared to other unidentified remains database. And we haven't had no association hit. Mm -hmm. So it's time now to bring this case, these details to the public and show these unique characteristics of this guy. It could trigger memories of who he was back then and maybe who he had contact with or maybe who could give us some direction on who this guy was. So I would say that these things are challenging but they're not impossible if we keep traction going. And right. this is this is one part of it right here. Wow. So you you get the bones. Um, you want the public to see kind of a visual of how he may have looked like. Yes. What do you do to get that? As far as as far as the, getting a depiction of what he looks like. Right. That's where what I'll do is I'll take I'll make sure that all of the work is done from the anthropologist, from the odontologist, the medical examiner, our crime scene photographs. And I take a big package to our detectives in the forensic artist section. And I basically give them everything I have. And they start taking all these little pieces and all of these really intimate details of this person and what they see in these reports. And they start rendering an image from their skill and craft. And what we end up having is a depiction of what this person would have looked like based on his characteristics of his dental work, his characteristics of his bones, and his um, features are basically depicted in that image that they're able to create. Well, you, you were also mentioning that you didn't know he even had a scar in his, in his brow until the forensic artist brought that up. Yeah, these are things you may like, for, from a detective standpoint, you're kind of scanning these files and you're going over all these things. And it's just the more eyes on a case, the better. Mm -hmm. The more detectives on a scene, the better chance you have mm -hmm. of not missing something. So this is one of those things where when Autumn's going into these intimate details of these reports, she's picking up on, you realize he had a unique scar on his eyebrow. That's which incredible. To me, it's almost as, as significant as a piece of jewelry right? or a handicap or a mole or mm -hmm. something of that nature. Somebody yeah. could recognize this face and say, yeah, I knew that guy or someone who looked like him who had a, also a scar in that in that brow. And we take his injuries. Well, like we talked about, he had injuries to his back. He had injuries to his face. Mm -hmm. He had injuries to his hands. It looks like this guy was a fighter. Now, these injuries were because he was hurt during the act? These are healed injuries. He okay. Yeah, these are all healed injuries. So these are, you know, these were prior to his death that mm -hmm. he had encountered through his life and sustained through his life experiences that caused that brow injury, mm -hmm. that caused the nose to start healing in a certain way, or caused his hands to be, you know, deformed or, or, or changed. The cause of his death was a gunshot wound. Mm -hmm. So he was shot and killed, okay, and then buried in a grave. But he had all of this life experience that brought these injury mm -hmm. and these traumas to his body. They kind of were able to give us a better perspective of who he was.
and then somebody went up out of their way to take their clothes uh and and hide every other evidence make your job incredibly difficult and bury all the bones hoping that it would it would be that would be the end of that right so he has no clothes on him right he's buried concealed so somebody's buying time mm -hmm. and distance from themselves by doing that i appreciate you coming and telling us about it uh uh, next, we're going to be interviewing the detective who actually made uh, this rendering basically from bone. She will take the skull and with her tools and her experience and her education, create this amazing rendering. And so we're going to talk to her next about it. Thank you so much Excellent. for being here today and talking about this case. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you very much. Now that we talked to Detective Cogburn about this case, uh, The Shallow Grave, uh, we wanted to bring in a exceptionally talented forensic artist from PBSO, Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office. We are blessed to have one of the few forensic artists uh, in the country that can do this kind of work. And we wanted to invite, uh, invite her here today to talk about it. Uh, Detective Autumn Crick, thank you so much for being here today. We want to know everything about you and how you get from the point where you get uh, these skeletal remains into rendering something like this. For this case, the, the shallow grave, there was no other evidence with this case. There's no piece of information that detectives can go on. There's no clothes. There's no features. There's no jewelry like we've seen with these other cases. It comes down to, you know, how can we uh, see how this person looked like? So walk me through the process of how this case evolved and how you can get from just a skull to something rendered that we can share with our audience. Sure. Well, cases like this one are probably one of the hardest where mm -hmm. it's just skeletal remains, as you're saying. And there isn't anything really else found with the remains to help us make our interpretations of maybe what the lifestyle or personality of this person was. We rely heavily on reports and information from the medical examiner, from forensic anthropologists. I have to review all the case information, the crime scene photos, crime scene reports, um, odontologists. I get asked all the time, how do you make a face from just the skull? Right. How do you know what the eyes look like? How do you know what the nose looks like? How do you know what the mouth looks like? Well, if you think about how people are unique, how faces are unique, what makes us different? And there's a, there's a bunch of different combinations of things. One of them is facial proportion. So where your features relate to one another, wide set eyes, closed set eyes, you know, if you had a long or short nose, how uh, your mouth was in relation to your nose. Those are some individual traits that help us to determine, you know, individuality. Mm -hmm. The other is the more specific of those features. Um, round eyes or almond eyes, hooded eyes or deep set eyes, or maybe a thin long nose, upturned or downturned. So how do you determine those unique features from just the bone? In our field, there is a lot of science that goes behind it and a little bit of art as well, obviously. It's, it's a combination of both science and art. So in reviewing this um, information, all these case reports, I get a background of this individual, but it starts to build a picture. Mm. So the anthropologist, 
who is a forensic anthropologist, is the person who studies specifically human remains. So they're the ones that make the formal assessment as far as ethnicity, gender, age. And that information is what we use to start compiling our reference images. So if they tell you this is a, a, a black male from this region, then you can, you know, start, it'll give you a lot of clues of how to compose and structure the face. Right. It gives me a, a starting point, mm -hmm. a reference point. I'll get to some of the troubleshooting and issues with that uh, as we go down the line. But for the conversation's sake here, there are some things just by observing the skull that have obvious correlations. For example, the eyes have to correlate with the eye orbits. The nose has to correlate with the nasal aperture. So mm -hmm. with length, size, placement, proportion of the face, we have by using the bony landmark of the skull itself. Mm -hmm. As far as individual features, those are more uh, calculated. That's mm -hmm. based on knowing facial anatomy, muscle anatomy, how muscle attaches and where it attaches to the bone, measurements uh, very specific to those attachments and placement of features. That gives me an indication of things like, were the eyes rounded? How is that? I attached to the bone itself because there's an indication you can see in the bone itself. Mm -hmm. um, but getting ahead of myself even now, the process from the start for these reconstructions, it really starts with either one of two ways. Hey, we have this case. Um, I'd like a facial reconstruction on it so we can get a new lead. Um, the other way is I myself am going through the cold cases to see what cases need a new reconstruction mm. or which cases don't currently have a reconstruction. From there, I have to determine if they have the remains or the skull specifically in storage. In some cases, especially in these cold cases or several year old cases where it's 20, 30, 40 years old, the remains have been buried in a grave for unknown deceased. Oh, wow. And that would require a whole separate process of uh, getting funding. And then, yes, exactly. Wow. Um, before I can even start or do anything on that case. So most of the bones and the um, other than the evidence that we find on the scene, uh, it wouldn't be stored in in our uh, evidence. evidence uh, no, uh, remains in the body are the property of the medical examiner. Gotcha. No, we so, take any of the items that were found on scene, but the body of itself is property of the medical, well, not property of, but they take ownership it is, of it. Right. Do you ever get like calf or just the jawline or? Yeah, um, the jaw, the mandible, mm -hmm. um, in life it is held together by connective tissue. So when you have skeletal remains in several cases, the jaw is detached from the skull and sometimes not even located on the crime scene. Mm -hmm. um, and that in part can be due to animal activity or weather, you know, an animal could have dragged it off and we just didn't find it mm -hmm. or it rained and it moved down with the water flow. Um, we do have calculations for approximations for how to determine the jaw uh, if it's missing. And you do get a lot of homicide cases too, where there's just significant damage to the skull itself. Mm. I take um, I take it to, well, I sign it out. It comes to the office and like I said, I have to prepare this skull to even be worked on. I have to review all the case information. Um, if the mandible is 
typically detached, so it has to actually be glued on mm -hmm. to the cranium to get the full skull so I can work on it. It gets um, mounted to the armature here and placed in what we call a Frankfurt horizontal plane, which is the plane that best simulates how you would hold your head in life. And that's how we uh, actually photograph it to so that we don't have like lens distortion. It doesn't look like the person has a smaller mm. chin and a larger forehead than they actually have right. along those lines. These markers or indicators that you see on the skull, those are tissue depth markers. And they're determined, uh, they're carefully measured and cut out individually for each skull based on ethnicity and based on uh, gender. These help approximate the soft tissue from the bone and gives us the facial contours of the individual. You know, some of them are bigger than others. Um, you, so you, you cut them individually based on what you think, how much soft tissue would be in that area. There's actually a, a chart, a measurement chart for there's 21 anatomical points that we place these markers on the face. There's a chart that was developed um, years ago in the 80s by a forensic anthropologist who studied uh, cadavers. And what he would do is when he had a fresh cadaver, they would take a small pin that was a measurement and place it in different landmark uh, locations on the cadaver so that they can measure soft tissue. Oh, wow. They developed a whole uh, approximate formulation based on ethnicity and uh, gender. Wow. So, so those are the that's the information we use. There's a um, a lot of research that we go through in order to make these. And we we we've seen from the past that these are kind of accurate measurements that you go by uh, because we've we we have identified a lot of cases from the artwork that you've created. Mm -hmm. Um, and and they're eerily similar from the rendering to the actual real person, uh, which is phenomenal. So we know that this process is really, really accurate. Yeah, it it's really the science behind it. Like I said, there's a lot of study that went into this over the decades, actually. Um, and we've really been able to fine tune placement feature attachments based on muscle, just really having a good understanding of anatomy. Um, it's important to remember that these are likenesses of an individual. Mm -hmm. The bone itself can tell you a lot if you know how to listen, but it doesn't tell you everything. It will tell you, um, you know, maybe how the proportions and the features are, but it, it won't tell you the minute details that make you you, the expressions mm -hmm. that you made when you talked or you laughed. Those are the things that those are the pieces of the puzzle that are still missing for us. Mm -hmm. um, so it's important to remember when you're looking at these reconstructions that it's a likeness that you're looking at of an individual. It's not a portrait of the person, just something we're trying to get similar to to help aid recognition. Right. So we're, we're, we're basically trying to trigger somebody's memory. And it could be that the eyes are similar or the construction of their face, they know some, you know, how bulky that person was or skinny uh, to, to have them uh, trigger that memory and say, hey, I, I think I know who that person was. And it all goes back to like how we as people recognize other people. Um, that same concept is what makes it so important to get features and proportions similar, starts to resemble somebody of that 
you know, it starts to resemble the person. You can't not resemble the person. It's basically the bone is the, it's like a roadmap to the mm-hmm. face. No two skulls are alike, just like no two faces are alike. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of detail in there if you're just looking in the right place. That's incredible. I mean, if I were to see two skulls, they were alike. But the fact that you get to see them and trigger a face, it's unbelievable. And how long does this take? Uh, process really, it's dependent on how quickly everything is flowing. If the remains are available, if I get the remains, if I have all the reports available that I can review everything, how damaged the skull is. Um, I've had a skull where I actually had to rebuild the portion of the front uh, of the skull out of clay because it had been completely damaged in that area. So um, it can take anywhere from two weeks if everything's there and ready to go to a month. Wow. So tell us about this case. So uh, were there anything particularly challenging or interesting that you found from this uh, reconstruction? This is one of those cases, I said earlier, that is the more difficult one. There wasn't any clothing found. There was no jewelry, uh, no remnants of hair. And so a lot of artistic interpretation has to be um, implied as educated as possible. So the anthropologist report had determined that it was a male of white, possibly Native American ancestry. Mm-hmm. Um, possibilities are not 100%. Right. So it's estimated that it could be. Given that possibility, um, I tried to stay ambiguous, which is sometimes the only thing I can do, where it has um, hair that could be light or dark in some cases, or short or long. Another thing within the reports I try to look at is when the remains were, when the estimated time of death was for those remains. Because if I'm depicting someone from the 80s, hairstyle, hair length, um, those things are probably going to be a lot different than if I'm depicting someone from the 2000s. Right. So uh, I take that into consideration as well. So you have to look at generational changes and trends that are happening in that uh, that time. That, along with their age, their gender, you know, a younger child or or young adult is going to wear their hair differently in the in the same That's incredible. age range will be different than, you know, someone older. You can account all these data points from all these different sources to try to and, and not be too specific in the way you create something because, you know, there, a lot is riding on it. You know, that if you if you do it, you know, one way too far, uh, it can throw off the case. People will, you know, might not recognize the person. So the balance that you have to create uh, when you when you do these are absolutely incredible. Um, that being said, how accurate do you think? Uh, to 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 what percentage of accuracy do you think these kind of renderings are? I know that you know uh, forensic artists have come a long way in 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 decades. You know, from uh, the pencil drawings that everybody kind of knows mm-hmm. uh, to the technology that we have today. Um, obviously, it's getting better and better every day. Uh, and and we can see that by all the cases that you've solved because of these um, these renderings. But uh, like, what's the art like margin of error with these 
renderings? That's a really difficult question because mm -hmm. there isn't a there isn't an answer that I can really give you there. The quality of the reconstruction is based on a lot of the quality of the information that we receive. Um, we have come really far, as we talked about, feature placement. I mean, those correlate to the bone itself. So that is, the, the margin of error on that is a lot smaller. Um, but the more information and correct information that I have, the more I can make better determinations. So if hair was found on the scene, for example, mm -hmm. I might have an indication of hair color and hair length, which I wouldn't have if nothing was found. Right. If clothing was found on the scene, I would have a better indication of maybe height and weight, mm -hmm. um, as well as lifestyle. What type of clothing they wore mm -hmm. can tell you a lot about somebody. I have had cases um, in which the reports from the anthropologists will say, this person could be white, black, or Hispanic. Well, that could be anybody. That includes everybody. <laughs> so okay. It doesn't it doesn't help my case in trying right. to really get accurate because now I have to really be very ambiguous with mm -hmm. all three races. It could be black, white, or Hispanic and try to um, let the bones and the features themselves speak for themselves. But it is one of the reasons that when we tell the public, we tell them, don't look for an exact likeness. Mm -hmm. Look for similarities. And if you even think it remotely looks like someone they, they knew, then call in with a tip because right. it's better to investigate a lead, even if it's not correct, than mm -hmm. have no leads at all. Right. This might be silly, but in this, in this picture, we have an eye problem. Yeah, and that is... Um, if I'm remembering right, it was the anthropologist had put white, Hispanic, or Native American. Mm -hmm. uh, if two out of three are suggesting that it's Native American or Hispanic, then your typical eye color is going and hair color is going to be darker. Wow. And that's part of that uh, educated interpretation part. Right. It it may not he may not have had that hairstyle. Uh, but there are a few indications um, from the skull that are unique to him. Uh, which I thought was interesting. And that was, he had several teeth that had been fixed that were previously broken. Mm. He had a nose fracture and he had a mark uh, above his right eyebrow that would have caused some sort of scarring over that right eyebrow. And if you look close enough, you can actually see the indentation here oh, wow. in the skull itself. For those who are just listening to the podcast, where can they see these pictures and perhaps even the recording of the podcast? So we're, we're uh, they can join us on our, uh, we created a new YouTube channel called uh, PBSO The Lead, where we're going to be publishing all of these videos, along with, uh, we created a Facebook group called the Palm Beach County Cold Cases. And there we will uh, have all the images of this case. We actually invited uh, all the web sleuths to join us in that, in that Facebook group. And then they'll have access to all the detectives' files, um, pertinent information that uh, they can help us with and, and help solving these cases. And Detective, thank you so much for being here with us today and talking to us about this case. Uh, what you do is unbelievably hard and uh, crucial to these cases. So we appreciate all the work that you do. Um, and be, without your help, we wouldn't be able to show uh, anybody how this person might've looked like. And we, 
you know, we, we wouldn't be able to trigger any memories from anybody. So your work is invaluable. Uh, thank you for being here today. We really appreciate you and all, all that you do. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it.